You're about to hear my conversation with Dustin Reed. We talk all about the recent Fed meeting, how the Bank of Canada determined to do a 50 basis point hike, the China reopening story, and what impacts that has to fixed income portfolios. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with Dustin Reed. Dustin is our chief strategist for the fixed income team. Dustin, welcome back. Hey, Matt. Thanks very much for having me back. We are uh, recording this on December 15th. Uh, just yesterday, the Fed uh, came out uh, with their uh, scheduled meeting. Uh, they did hike interest rates by 50 basis points, which I think was widely expected by markets. Uh, Dustin, love your take on uh, on the Fed meeting yesterday. Uh, anything surprising there? Yeah, for sure. I think um, there's a number of interesting things on on the Fed side that uh, that, that popped out of the meeting. Yeah, absolutely. Fed did 50, as you said. Uh, Yesterday, uh, the market was was very much priced that way. I think the market went in at maybe fifty one or fifty two basis points. So basically, right. basically right in line. Not a not a big surprise there. Um, I, I would say that the the big takeaway, I mean, a number of takeaways. The big takeaway for for me and many in the market was it was it was quite hawkish, uh, particularly in the wake of the previous day CPI data, which was a little bit lower than expected. We'll kind of wrap wrap that in in a sec. Um, but the statement yesterday, which is very, very formal, um, was, was very little change from the early November meeting, which I think surprised a lot of people. I think a lot of people were expecting um, that to maybe gear down a little bit in terms of language. Um, so there was essentially essentially no changes. There was a little bit of a a little bit of a tweak around the uh, the ongoing uh, issue in uh, war going on in Ukraine. Uh, but it was more semantics than anything else. It wasn't really a, a, a change. And then there was very little else change in the statement. The dot plot's getting a lot of attention, as it should. Um, so the the Fed, the, the going into the meeting, the, I think people were uh, on the fence between, uh, is the Fed going to raise the terminal rate by 25 basis points from where it was um, at, the, at the September meeting uh, or 50 basis points? And to be fair, totally fair, I think... Um, we were skewing on the hawker side, but we thought it would be a very, very close call. Maybe, maybe even tied, or or one or two, one or two dots, one or two votes, so to speak, to get to maybe you know fifth, a change of fifty in the terminal rate uh, versus the previous one, which would take, which would take, to be fair, our t- sorry, take the Fed to where we are from uh, in terms of the terminal rate, which is five to five and a quarter. Anyway, <clears throat> what happened in the plot was uh, it, it did go to five to five and a quarter. But it was a strong, strong majority, and there are only two participants, voting and non-voting, who actually had, um, who actually penciled in uh, rates below five to five and a quarter uh, Fed funds terminal range. Only two. You had a very large majority at the median, so to speak, and this is for 2023, obviously. Uh, and then you had seven of nine. There, there are 19 people uh, participating, so you had seven of 19 actually above the five to five and a quarter. Uh, terminal rate. Uh, so that that 
was taken and probably rightly so as as uh, quite a bit hawkish again in the wake of the day before where i'm sure you know many of our many people listening here saw the cpi data of the us and right. it was a little bit uh lower than expected and i think i think a lot of people were were probably skewing a little bit more on the dover side it, it was an odd it, it's an odd uh kind of setup where you had CPI before the day before the Fed meeting. Well, the day before the Fed's decision, it actually was on the first day of the Fed meeting, um, and it happened to be a December meeting, which is obviously a forecast round meeting as opposed to not a forecast round meeting. So yeah, it kind of was an interesting setup, and um, you know, in some ways, you you have to look at that dot plot for twenty three and say, you know, did people actually take the day before the the, the CPI data in, into account? Right. Uh, you know, and what happened there, because the dot plot almost doesn't look like that that is the case. Uh, and so there, I think that, you know, there's a bit of questioning happening in the market. You definitely have a camp of people that are saying, oh, wow, we need to catch up to Fed hawkishness. And then I think you have another camp that's probably saying, I, we don't, you know, we just don't believe this. We think that this is, you're not, you're not looking at the right things and, you know, we've moved on and we're looking at prices. We're seeing prices come off. It's been at least two months of pretty significant deceleration in, in CPI and, you know, fed, you're not taking this into, you're not taking this into account. So you're, you know, we're calling, we're calling your bluff, so to speak. And there's probably a, a small third camp here, which will probably get a little bit bigger, which is kind of, kind of wrapped into the second, which is the you know, fed might be walking into a policy error. Um, and so I think this gets really, so I think it gets really interesting. And the press conference obviously was, was relatively hawkish and pretty much, pretty much staying the course in terms of, um, you know, we need to do more. So like some of the quotes from Powell would be, you know, we've got literally that we've got more work to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, we need to see substantially more evidence of lower inflation. Um, the fed is not currently at a, a sufficiently restrictive, uh, stance. So rates aren't high enough for long enough. And there's still some ways to go. So it's it's interesting. We had a, had a very good discussion on the team, kind of ex post yesterday, and then and then this morning as well around kind of what everyone's thinking. I think, um, <clears throat> well, cl first of all, clearly the next CPI data, to state the obvious, is exceptionally important. I mean, they're all important at this point, but at this right. point, at, you know, at the next meeting. Sorry, the next CPI print, which I believe is uh, Thursday, uh, January 12th, uh, is going to be a big deal. Because if it comes in and showing decelerating prices again, that's at least three meetings. Uh, sorry, at least three data points. And right. in the wake of kind of what happened ye uh, yesterday with the Fed, it will give a lot more credibility to this camp that it's the Fed's looking a little obsolete in terms of its view the fed the fed would counter that by saying well we're not only looking at prices we're also looking at the labor market which remains exceptionally hot and powell had a lot of commentary underscoring that yesterday and i and i wouldn't disagree with that the beverage ratio uh you know which i think is at the top of the fed's dashboard for the labor market uh is still at 1.7 so again, the, the the beverage ratio is just a, a back of the envelope calculation. The number of job, the percentage of job openings divided by the unemployment rate, and it's currently running at one seven. And for perspective, pre twenty twenty, when things went obviously uh, you know sideways, that ratio was kind of one point one to one point three, bouncing around. So and it's been recently as high as as two. So it has come off, you know three 
three um, three tenths of a percentage point uh, to be fair, but it probably needs to get below 1.3. And and the Fed's rationale, which I would agree with, is if you have too if you have not enough people looking for and too many job openings, um, it's going to have an upward impact on wages because sure. people because it's basically a you you can kind of demand you know, the wage that you want, people have to go in, people have to be a little more aggressive in terms of offering wages. And that obviously has a feedback effect on CPI and inflation. And that's kind of not, not what we want, you know, for the Fed uh, or any central bank really. And, uh, you know, we need to kind of take the froth out of this, this beverage ratio, particularly by getting the number of job opening available, job openings available lower. So, so I think the Fed is probably going to, focus on that and focus on, uh, you know, financial conditions. So, you know, there's some talk after kind of all I've said here that the Fed may decide to extend this hiking cycle uh, into Q2. Right. And I think February is very much in play here, whether it's going to be 25 or 50. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we could see 25, 25, 25 for the next three meetings. So Feb 1st, uh, March and then May, which would get you uh, the market uh, to our, our level of five to five and a quarter uh, terminal Fed funds. Uh, you could also see 50 in February, um, and then it would be a little bit more interesting kind of how this goes. But I think the market, uh, and, and I think the Fed to a point is somewhat coalescing around the idea of this five to five and a quarter neighborhood where we've been for a little bit in terms of policy rates. Um, there's definitely a camp that's lower than that. And there's definitely a camp that's higher than that. But I think that, um, you know, I think what's going to be really interesting here is obviously it's holiday season. Um, are there going to be people that push back on the, on the hawkish narrative from, from the fed when things start getting rolling again, we start getting fed speakers, um, because, um, you know, it's not clear to me that everybody, just the way the dates fell with the CPI data and the Fed meeting date and that it was a forecast date, not right. everybody really had the full opportunity to ingest this CPI print on the first day of the two-day Fed meeting. And so we'll see. The, the opportunity for people in January to kind of walk it back or at least talk it down a little bit sure. uh, will will emerge. And it'll be obvious. If we see two or three or four key people start to you know, walk it back a little bit, uh, that, that, that'll suggest that there's not as much actual confidence in those 23 dots as expected. If we don't, then I think that pathway to five to five and a quarter is, is very, very likely. Great. Um, wonderful comments there. Uh, I had several follow-up questions that I think you answered through okay. uh, the, 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 uh, your, your comments there. So the excellent sure. uh, perspective, uh, heading North to, to bank of Canada. Sure. Um, they acted, uh, recently, uh, a 50 basis point hike, a little bit of a, a larger hike than had been anticipated. Right. Uh, but with, uh, widely interpreted dovish, uh, language as opposed to the fed, which was more hawkish. Uh, right. what's your view on bank of Canada? Um, do you agree that sort of that dovish language is uh, is the overall theme, and and how do you expect it to proceed? So the bank has been tricky, uh, and it has it it has been a little bit confounding to a, lo- a lot of people. I, w- I would put myself in that list. The bank has, I, I would say, surprised the market, at least market pricing. Um, right. Three of the last four meetings. Um, recall in July, the market was essentially priced for seventy five. It did a hundred. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in September, it was priced for seven. Market was priced for seventy-five. It did seventy-five. Um, market was uh, priced for uh, seventy-five in October. It did uh, fifty, and then right. market was pricing uh, closer to twenty-five for December, and it did fifty. <laughs> so it's been a little. It's been a little challenging calling calling the calling the bank. I actually. Uh, and so the December, and so the Fed and 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 the bank are are on opposites basically when it comes to uh, doing forecast rounds. So while you know, obviously, just spend some time going through the Fed forecast round for December. December meeting for the BOC is not a forecast round. We'll have a forecast round for the bank in January, uh, Bank Canada okay. January. So this was a slightly uh, not not quite as significant meeting, uh, you know, on the margin. Um, so you get the statement, you don't get a, you don't get an update per se in terms of the the numbers and you get a follow-up and we have one of the deputy governors do the follow-up the next day. There's not a traditional press conference with the governor and senior deputy governor as you do with the, the, um, <clears throat> the forecast round meetings. So the statement definitely had, had a few things in it that seemed to suggest that the bank might be getting ready to, to slow down, um, but I would say since the meeting uh, earlier this week, we had uh, we had Governor Macklem in Vancouver uh, speaking, and he actually <laughs> some, somewhat gave uh, some credibility to the idea of uh, maybe a little bit higher for longer, so on the margin, a little bit more hawkish than not, uh, in his kind of year-end uh, commentary, which I thought was quite interesting. So again, kind of under this umbrella from the bank that it's been – a little more challenging. It's actually, it's interesting. You've got, got so many more speakers for the fed, which, you know, in some ways can make right. it easier. Can some, can some ways make it more difficult. Uh, the, the bank here is obviously a little bit less transparent. We don't get, you know, minutes per se. We don't really know the vote count like we do in the U S uh, but it's just, you know, there's let, there's less speaking. So in some way that's makes it a little easier. Some makes it a little more ways, makes it a little more difficult. Well, you know, when the governor speaks, obviously, you take that very, very seriously. And uh, and I think that when when the governor did his year end uh, commentary uh, on the West Coast earlier this week, it 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 gave me a little bit more uh, uh, confidence around the idea of higher for longer in Canada. I mean, obviously, a lot of people, including ourselves, have had this view that kind of first in, first out in a way uh, right. for, for Bank of Canada um, and, and I think we still, you know, we still believe that and the market still believes that. And it was a good, and we spent some time on these podcasts earlier in the year where it was reversed, where the market was pricing in for the bank to out hawk the fed, you know, that's, that's flipped back to where I think it should be with the fed out hawking the bank and for the last number of months. So, you know, that's, that's fine. But I think that, um, this, this kind of 60 basis point terminal rate differential pricing from the bank, sorry, from the market between the fed and the bank. So basically by that, it's just a, a fancy way of saying that the market is pricing in, uh, the terminal rate for the bank, sorry, terminal rate for the fed to be 60 basis points higher, six oh basis points higher than, than the bank of Canada. And I don't think that that's necessarily that far off, but obviously I, th- I think there's a risk that if the, if the fed continues to, go higher than our expected range that, you know, we've talked about already uh, that, that the bank gets dragged higher with it. Because I think the dirty right. secret is that the bank probably doesn't want to be that far outside of where the Fed hiking cycle is. Obviously we in Canada are, you know, it's a higher beta economy. It's more, mm-hmm. um, it's more uh, impacted by exports. Um, the housing market is clearly a, a bigger 
component and driver for the economy, and whether that's housing in general or the real, you know, real estate uh, wages earned uh, and you know percentage of the job market, construction, all that stuff. When I say kind of real estate, I'm kind of encapsulating all of that. It's a bigger percentage right. here than it is in the U.S., and so there's more cyclicality. There's a higher, there's a higher beta kind of you know, amplitude in the cycle, so to speak. So that that's, that's significant. And the bank, I think, you know, probably should be taking that into account. My impression from the December meeting was that it's still not overly concerned around the, particularly the variable rate mortgage side uh, of the housing market, maybe as much as I, I would be in terms of the, in terms of the impact. Uh, and that was the big takeaway. If you recall, we talked about it a few times uh, from the July from the July meeting as well from the bank, which uh, was kind of the initial the initial uh, impact or initial commentary on that. So I think I think the bank here has has more work to do. To be specific, just kind of uh, you know in real time, the market is basically pricing the the terminal rate for the Bank of Canada to be of four point four percent, four hundred and forty basis points, and and the current rate is for um, about 425. So the market's pricing basically another 15 basis points in the hiking cycle. So it's effectively done or give or take it's, it's done. Um, meanwhile, the fed, just for perspective, the market's pricing, uh, about 490, uh, basis points. So I guess it's about 50 basis points spread here to be fair. Um, you know, which would be another 56 basis points from, from the fed. So we would be, we'd be a little bit more, a little bit more aggressive, I think, on on pro- probably both on the margin, partic- with a little more confidence on the U.S. than than the Canadian side. So I think that you know the inflation numbers here remain pretty sticky, um, mm-hmm. coming off a little bit more than the U.S. I think, um, and some of the language in the BOC meeting, sorry, the BOC statement from the meeting was uh, suggestive to me that the bank is concerned about long-term inflation expectations becoming more anchored or structural. And that generally means a higher for longer cycle to kind of stamp that out. And the labor market here also, except with a couple of little wiggles is pretty, pretty solid. It's pretty hot. And, um, you know, what's different here versus the U S is a lot of the jobs that were lost during COVID, uh, we, we have essentially made those up when you just look at the nominal level. Uh, the U.S. Right. is still has not made those up. And so that's where there's a little bit more of a disconnect on the wages side. So I think um, I think the risk is still more here. Um, I think the date like in the U.S., the data is going to really dictate this. The, the bank is going to be very, very focused on core measures and seeing if the core measures come off. And I think to a lesser extent than the U.S., but still important how the labor market continues to function. This 440 level terminal rate for the bank is probably not too far off. Okay. Probably. As long as the Fed doesn't have another upshift beyond five to five and a quarter. But if for whatever reason the Fed we're talking about a terminal rate in a couple months' time or three months' time of five and a half or or above mm-hmm. that, and that's not my that's not my working base case scenario. But if we are, then this four point four number that's currently sitting for the bank looks obsolete. And there's obviously implications for the front end of the curve and right. curve structure 
and you know cross asset Canadian dollar, you know probably probably you know equities and, and higher beta assets, you know if if that needs to be repriced on uh, on the Canadian side. But obviously, <clears throat> there's a lot more to it than that. You know particularly the you know, the, the China story, uh, commodity story. You know here you know the domestic impact. But yeah, I would say that's kind of the the Bank of Canada view at uh, at this point. Well, you referenced China there. Why don't we turn our attention uh, to China? Uh, during our last discussion, uh, you had suggested that we need to uh, look carefully at uh, a lot of the statements coming out of the Chinese government to uh, find a pivot away from the zero COVID policy. Yeah. Um, I'd suggest that you haven't had to look very subtly um, uh, yeah. lately and that there's been some pretty uh, dramatic shifts on uh, on zero COVID from the from the Chinese uh, government. Yeah. Um, what's your what's your view on China? Is this uh, is this a total reopening play? How, how is this going to unfold? I wish I had all the answers as to how it was going to unfold, but sure. I, I mean, I don't. I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be a little, a little challenging. But I, you know, kind of going back to where we were a month ago, I mean, I think we had a pretty good, a pretty good view that the China story was going to be a big driver for the first half of the year, particularly Q1. And I would say I'm, I was a little surprised, kind of in the immediate aftermath of the last time we did this, this discussion. How how quickly those those statements came on, and and to your point exactly, I think you're you're absolutely right. Didn't have to look very hard. I mean, they're very right. they're, they're quite they're quite overt uh, statements. So clearly that is going. I mean, the view we had at the time, kind of two things that are essentially the same. Beyond kind of the wiggle of you know stop start and maybe they're doing something in one city and not in another city, and you've got something from central planning versus local and all that. You kind of look through all that noise. You kind of step back, and I said. Where let's put a let's put a marker in the ground and where where is this going to be on June thirtieth, twenty twenty three? Like what? Like mm. I think I I think I can see the pathway to where this is going to go. I can't I can't call every twist and turn, but I think if I step back and I say okay, in seven ish months or wherever we were at the time, you know, mid year next year, literally, like, is this more open, the same, or is it nothing uh, or la- you know less, more restrictive? And I just thought, not only is it more open, but it's significantly more open. And then the second thing is, and it's related to the first, is I don't think China can afford to have a 2023 like 2022. I think mm-hmm. it needs to have a much more robust uh, economic uh, opening um, change in change in you know, society feeling tone. You know. Sentiment, sentiment, I guess is the word I'm looking for, and I think that, um, and I think that's very much behind kind of what the news flow that we've seen in the last three, four, five weeks. So I think we're going to see. Uh, it's probably not linear, but I think we're going to see a pretty decent reopening here on, on China, uh, on zero COVID. I mean, it looks more obvious now than you know when I would have said this five weeks ago when we had the last sure. chat. Um, yeah. And I think the monetary and fiscal injections will be not insignificant. Uh, you know, they're putting, they're making significant moves within the property sector as well to try and put uh, good, you know, significant tweaks there to try and um, bolster that because obviously people have a lot of a lot of money tied up in in the domestic real estate sector. Uh, the tech sector has done exceptionally well um in the last in the last few weeks and um and i think we'll continue to see a lot of the policy 
and liquidity injections throughout and the news flow, sorry, the news flow broadly speaking, when you kind of step back, maybe not looking day to day, but more week to week or, you know, month to month, it's going to be significantly more progressive. Again, kind of under this banner or this umbrella that I don't think China wants to have a 23 like it had, like it had for 22. And we're in the middle of the Central Economic Works Conference now. So I, I'm not sure how that's going to go, but I would be Surprise if we didn't see something around a five or five and a half GDP, real GDP growth target come out of that right. for for 23. And they're really going to go for it, I think. Mm. And um, and that's going to take a lot of a lot of liquidity. And I think it's quite good. I think it's good for and it's obviously very constructive for China, which is great. It's it's great for the region, which is good. I think it I think it helps to underpin global growth a little bit and maybe takes a little bit of the concern around um, you know, a, glo- a, a hard landing, global economic hard landing, so to speak, right. given obviously a lot of rate hikes have happened around the world. And we're still at the early stages of seeing the cumulative effect of that happen. It's probably good for commodity prices, you know, which in turn kind of to my last section is, is probably not not bad, at least on the margin for, you know, for Canada, uh, you know, with, with the reopening. And it's good for EM. Um, you know, so those are things that we, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about and looking at. I think I think China is a very, very important driver for thematics and sentiment. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, on key drivers for markets, not only what is currently driving markets, but what the next themes are and how to rotate into that and the timing around that. And I think China continues to be a big driver for markets. I mean, obviously, you can say that with a little more authority now than five weeks ago, but I think it will be for Q1, H1, 23, and it's probably the second most important uh, driver for markets besides central banks slash the Fed. And I would say that the gap between central banks slash uh, central banks and the Fed versus uh, China is probably narrowing, particularly hmm. if kind of going back to where we were earlier in this conversation, the market basically starts to call bogus on the Fed's outlook uh, and dot plot outlook. So uh, China will be an even bigger driver for for market thematics and and global global sentiment and global market sentiment in in Q1 and H1. So I think China is really really interesting as always, but particularly now, and will continue to be interesting here for the next little bit. Is there any tension at all between the the Chinese uh, reopening and impact on global inflation? I'm thinking primarily of commodity prices. If you have a upward uh, pressure on commodities with uh, China reopening, you know, does that undermine any of the uh, CPI numbers, uh, the trend of CPI numbers uh, around the world that we're seeing? I think that's yeah, I think that's a great question. The um, and we even have we have a good debate on this, even on the team, and it's not mm-hmm. it's not all one way. So I think you know to kind of ex- maybe explain both sides. Um, so I think from a commodity perspective, I think it's almost one way constructive for commodities, you know, the reopening. And sure. there are some inventory levels on some input uh, commodities, particularly like metals, um, uh, copper, nickel, iron ore, that might be a little bit on the lower side. So as you know, to replenish those levels is demand for those products, prices go up, et cetera. Right. But on kind of the, I think what you're getting at also the uh, kind of the uh, you know, inflation and supply chain issues, right? So obviously, Kind of re- rewind back to 2000, 2000, sorry, 2020, 2021. Sure. Um, we had obviously a very significant event and a global economic shutdown in many ways. Supply chains kind of uh, you know, stopped, and we saw 
higher, um, you know, higher prices globally, right? So one camp would say, okay, we're now reopening, so that, those supply chains should be easier, so that should have a negative impact on prices. So prices, maybe not prices lower, but but slower increases in prices or slowing prices, right. right? The other camp might say, well, there's so much pent up Chinese demand that what I just said just now doesn't actually matter, or at least it matters less, and you're going to be you know, overwhelmed, so to speak, by the increase in demand. I think I think the answer to that question is really tough, and I think really I think there's I, I have a lot of sympathy for both arguments. I I don't I don't know. And some you know sometimes I know, sometimes I don't. This sure. one I I don't know actually how it plays out. I, I can easily see either side. The fundamentalist in me says, okay, well this is what happened in 2020. This is now probably going to be the opposite. So therefore, it should be the opposite impact. But I'm very, very sympathetic. So that would basically mean, just to finish the thought, I guess, is um, we should be seeing slowing prices or or lower prices or slower prices, however you want to define it. Right. So that's kind of the fundamentalist in me kind of taking, okay, this happened in 2020, so this should be happening in 22, 23. But, but there's going to be so much pent up uh, demand out of out of China that I, I can see that getting overwhelmed. So maybe the delta around the impact of slowing prices is not going to like, so the number of uh, the impact or the feel of slowing prices is not going to be as large as it was on the upside that we saw for 2020, 2021. So maybe directionally that is correct, but the impact isn't as significant. It's the magnitude is lower, so to speak. That's probably the way it's, it's going to go. But I, I mean, okay. I think there's a real, I think there's a real market there. Um, People that I speak to and read uh, in, you know, that watch this uh, that are much, much better than I am. There's definitely there's definitely two camps. And I think that uh, it's unclear as to which way um, which way it spells out. I think I think that, you know, the takeaway, particularly for us sitting here in Canada, I think I think the commodity space looks constructive if China continues to reopen at a relatively steady pace. Um, restocking inventories and just pent up demand inputs for for manufactured goods, you know, all those things, and that's obviously given the makeup of our economy here. And Leslie's done a really good job, um, you know, particularly I remember last year just being overweight Canadian equities going into uh, going into 2022. I mean, that was you know a great call. I think, you know, you could see you could see some of that um, potentially being. Uh, a, a driver here. I'm not necessarily calling that for equities. That's that's not my call. But you know, from a commodities perspective, you can see that commodities can have a pretty potentially a pretty good run here. I'm not talking oil, right? Like more, more, uh, more input metals uh, like right. like copper, nickel, iron ore, um, those sorts of things that that I think can really uh, power uh, some you know some some stuff. And then obviously. Um, the reopening, I think, is probably also also quite constructive for ag. So maybe like wheat, barley, sure. um, you know, some of some of those things. And obviously, you've got the supply supply issue that probably is going to continue to be happening, unfortunately, for a while. Out of you know the kind of the European breadbasket with the obvious conflict that's going on in uh, in the Ukraine, which is obviously a big producer of wheat. So um, so I think obviously that's also constructive for. Um, you know, for for how the Canadian economy works there too. So it's those are things we we think about and kind of take into account as as we move forward. 
That's great, Dustin. Uh, maybe we'll turn to uh, what's going on in the portfolio. Uh, sure. You've laid out sort of your your base case for uh, interest rates and uh, inflation growth. Uh, we've had a, a yeah. long conversation here. Yeah. Uh, wh- how is that being reflected in your fixed income portfolios? There's a few things that we're doing slash have done. Um, kind of picking up on the China story first, I guess. Um, so we've been legging into some higher beta trades, I think before, before the October CPI data, which printed in early November, that was kind of the first one that was a lot lower than expected. And then when we got that data, we, we definitely liked the EM space for a few reasons that you know, the, the China story, it was all, not a perfect storm, but getting close to it. China story right. was significant. US data significant. Um, how we thought the market would then, and then inter, uh, uh, interpret the previous week, the November FOMC um, meeting, and those sorts of things, I thought were, were and, and obviously the dollar story that you know selling U.S. dollars been quite bullish U.S. dollars for a long time, which kind of worked out, um, and kind of the turning of the tide on, on the U.S. dollar side. So we thought that was quite constructive setup for EM. So we did do a fair bit of EM uh, overweight, not only in our global and unconstrained funds, but we also added a decent amount. In some of our core funds, because it was really uh, it was really strong view, uh, not only I think from my side, but shared across across the team. Uh, so so we've had that on and continue to have that on, and kind of wanted to get to yesterday in particular. Let's get to the Fed meeting, see how prices, you know, see what the Fed does, obviously, see what CPI does, see how markets trade, and then see how global risk sentiment. And obviously, the China story as it evolves is a big driver there too. So sure. uh, still, you know, still hold that position and, and generally like that position, um, although it's moved a lot. So from a fundamental perspective, we like it from a positioning perspective, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we expected to happen in the price has now been priced in, so to speak. So, you know, as, as Constantine likes to say, which I think is a really great way of looking at markets. If, if you had nothing on or you had no position, would, would you do it now? Right from right. a risk reward perspective, which I think is always a really good and important way of looking and continuing to monitor and evaluate trades that you already have on. So we kind of, sorry, we do continue to to look at that. So that 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 would be one. The duration call obviously is you know exceptionally important for us as a fixed income team, um, and we've been, you know, we've talked about this a few times. Started getting long, long and Canadian duration, uh, late late summer, early fall on this idea of kind of first in first out. And that has been, um, you know, that has been a, a good trade for us and we, we continue to like it. We're obviously starting to think about the steepener trade, which seems to be the consensus trade within the fixed income space for 23. I know a lot of macro and uh, macro hedge funds and leverage funds are looking at putting that on and have started to put dip their toes in putting that on for 23. Maybe it's a bit early, maybe not. Um, clearly that's going to be a discussion for 23, you know, is the steepener on? If so, where to put it on, how much, how early, that sort of thing. Um, but for now, you know, we've had a pretty good long, long end Canada duration call. And, and that's been, and that's been quite, uh, constructive, uh, I think for the portfolio and, and within that, um, or at least, at least tangentially to that, this uh, the the real the real yield uh, trade. So a lot of our a lot of our duration maybe ex Canada, although in Canada too with real return bonds, but a lot of our duration has been picked up in on the real return side. So in the U.S. tips, 
um, right. in Canada, they literally are called RRBs, real return bonds. And then globally, a lot of people just refer to it as linkers, link, link to inflation. But the real return bond trade and getting duration at the long end has been has been there. And um, and yeah, we keep uh, obviously uh, monitoring our, our dollar CAD exposure as well. For a while, we had a lot of our dollar CAD exposure essentially at neutral, or what we would call neutral for our, our purposes across the portfolio. And that, and that was the right call, although we've kind of missed a little bit of this move kind of from 134 to 136 and a half, 37, haven't necessarily had had a lot on. Uh, so kind of keeping uh, keeping an eye on uh, on that, um, you know, so between, I mean, between the, the duration call obviously is very, very important, but uh, you know, keeping that keeping that uh, in mind, uh, you know, the Canada call, the uh, the EM call have also been, uh, or sorry, the dollar Canada call and the EM call have also been important. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the things. One of the things I'm also looking at, um, and we've been in and out a number of times this year, um, <clears throat> is the Europe story. And the ECB is having a meeting as we speak and press conference, kind of as we um, do this do this uh, podcast recording here now. Um, it's been it's been my view, and I think a number of people on the team's view that the ECB uh, still because I would have said the same thing a year ago, still has a lot of work to do. I guess I wouldn't have said still. Uh, it would just, you know, it had a lot of work to do having started at negative rates. I don't believe that this two and a half, two and three quarter, even 3% terminal rate market pricing for the ECB is accurate. I think the, the, the CPI levels are too high notionally in or nominally in, in, in the Eurozone. And it's too stru- sticky, too structural, and that that level of inflation, sorry, that level of policy rate is is probably probably not going to cut it. And one of the big trades, I mean, it sounds a little more obvious now given the last couple of hours, although I haven't been through it in detail, but uh, I've seen the headlines, um, so it does sound a little more obvious now. But I would have said the same thing a month ago, which we were. It looks like the ECB is going to have a fair bit of work to do here, I think. Right. And um, the ECB is going to have to get to a higher rate, I think, than the market is pricing and hold that rate for a longer period of time than the market's pricing to try and stamp out inflation. Um, typically, Europe is a bit of a lower beta economy versus the North American economy. So not not as high uh, a growth rate. You know, the, the structural unemployment rate is higher particularly versus the U.S., but I would also say versus here. Uh, and I think that um, I think there are some really interesting opportunities. You've had the chief economist lane in, uh, in at the ECB, who's been who's probably one of the most dovish people at all on the committee. And there are you know in well well above twenty people on that committee. And so you basically you're often getting a starting point. I think from you know, getting presented to the committee that's quite dovish. And I think that that has probably slowed the pace of hikes and the starting point of hikes for the ECB. And I think that that is starting to turn. And I think today is also uh, another notch in that in the evolution of that narrative. And I think that um, we're going to need to see policy rates above 3% and not only above 3 but above 3 for a while. And I think that that once again presents interesting opportunities for the um, for the European curve, particularly the front end of the curve, uh, maybe higher for longer. And we've been in this flattener or pseudo flattener you know, on the German curve for a while. And that that could be 
that could continue to be a great trade and, and continue to flatten. And, and it's frankly, it's been inverted for a, a little bit here, a few weeks. And I think that, you know, kind of twos, tens, Germany uh, can continue to invert here for, for a little bit kind of on this policy. So it's one of the big kind of macro trades I like, particularly for the first half of 23. It's more nuanced than that because there's the quantitative tightening story going on uh, in the background. And I think that's, I think that's also important, but broadly speaking, I think that, um, the European macro story is a really interesting one, uh, for the first half of 23. And it's, you know, along with the China story and obviously, you know, what needs to get priced out maybe for the back half of 23 for the fed, i.e. this 50 or so 40 or 50 basis points of easing, for the Fed uh, and maybe the bank uh, is also, you know, a key driver. I think for what what will happen for markets for uh, and how markets will trade, not only fixed income but also also uh, cross asset for um, for the first half of 23. Well, Dustin, uh, I appreciate you walking through that, spending so much time with us. I uh, hope you get a, a few days off over the holidays. Uh, it'll be the last time we have you on this year, but I look forward uh, to next year and uh, and your thoughts uh, as all of these uh, situations continue to unfold. Yeah, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. And it's been a real pleasure coming on to uh, the podcast for the year. Look forward to doing more uh, with you and uh, and the team in uh, in 23. Thanks for having me on and uh, definitely all the best to you and the crew for uh, the holidays and the new year. Thanks, Dustin. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 